first scripture reading is from Matthew 21, verses 18 to 22. Matthew 21. Chapter 21 from verse 18. Now, in the morning, when he returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Would you also turn, please, to Micah chapter 6, verse 9. I'll read through to chapter 7, verse 8, but I won't be uh, covering that last part of chapter 6. I'll move on in the text for the sermon to chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. But uh, we will read that last part of Micah 6 from verse 9. The voice of the Lord will call to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear thy name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time? Is there yet a man in the wicked house, along with treasures of wickedness, And a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. And your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed. And in their devices you walk. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. Now our text. Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers and the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land 
and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, or so the judge, for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul. So they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post a watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbour. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would arm us by your word to resist better the pressures to be conformed to this world. Father, will you use your word by the power of your spirit to transform us more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ as outlined in your word, rather than to become more and more like, like the world and the people of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, as uh, I think of some of the changes that have taken place in our society, in my lifetime at least, some of the things that I've noticed, uh, I can certainly see a lot of change. And uh, no doubt uh, many of you can say exactly the same thing. I've seen the church and Christians go from being, uh, to some extent at least, a favoured group in society to an often ignored and even quite often despised part of society. I've seen the standards in our society depart from those that were, at least in an outward way, more or less in accord with the Bible, to an anything-goes approach to morality, or rather to immorality, and then from there, more recently, to a cancelling of any voice that tries to stand against that. I've seen, seen things change from a situation where Christians could go out in the street, they could go to the street corners in the cities, the CBDs, they could go door knocking and such things in order to bring the gospel. A time when people would contact the church, inquirers seeking the truth, would contact the church and be looking for answers. I've seen things go from that to a situation where the, the open proclamation of the gospel in the marketplace is often illegal in many Western countries, not to mention some of the other countries, and where it becomes rare even for people to contact the church for material help now, let alone for spiritual help. People don't want to hear any preaching of any kind from Christians. 
And this is, of course, not the first time in history that things have been this way. Micah faced a very similar situation. And he didn't find it easy either. But he did know how to deal with it. And we see what he did with it under two headings, and it's following very much the natural division of this passage. First heading, woe is me, and that's in verses 1 to 6. And then the second point, but as for me, in verses 7 and 8. Woe is me, but as for me. In the first place, as I'm sure you understand, that expression, woe is me, in uh, verse 1, this, this is an expression of grief. Sometimes in the scripture, the word woe and that kind of expression is used to speak about what God is bringing on a society, the punishment he's bringing, the woes that he brings upon those uh, whom he is ch chastising or punishing. But in this case, and, and often the case in scripture, it is an expression of grief. Another passage of that kind, Jeremiah 10, verse uh, 19. The reason for the grief is due both to what was not common among God's people, Judah, and also it is grief due to what was common. What was not common is described by this illustration, this simile here. Micah says he's like a man who's hungry for grapes, or hungry for figs off the fig tree, perhaps in a situation where uh, he was a, a visualising himself as a poor man who would go gleaning in the orchards to get some of, and the vineyards to get some of the grapes or the, the figs there, according to that Old Testament law. But he finds that there's nothing there, there's nothing left, or there's nothing there, there's no clusters on the vines, and there's no figs on the trees. Verse 2 makes it clear that the simile here, what he's pointing to, the fruit that Micah craves but which he cannot find, that which is not common in the land is godliness. And that was the point of the Lord Jesus in his acted out parable in Matthew 21 verses 18 to 22 which we read. In fact, uh, it's even possible that the Lord Jesus set up that acted out parable out of familiarity with this kind of language in the Old Testament. The point of it being that the Lord Jesus curses that barren fig tree because he was hungry and it could not provide him with fruit, making the point that Israel is the fig tree that he cursed because there was no godliness in the land in his time either. Now when we read that kind of expression that there was no godliness in the land, there was no godly person, there was no upright man. When we read that kind of language, that is not an absolute statement. It's not to say that there are no believers at all. It is a generalization. It's saying that this is what is characteristic of this society. And not just this society, it's characteristic of fallen man in general, wherever one goes in this fallen world society as a whole. The same is true when Micah says the godly person has perished, there's no upright person among men. Uh, he's saying this as a generalisation. What makes this especially significant as a generalisation in this context 
is that literally, in the Hebrew language, Micah says, there is no chesed man in the land. I've used that word a few times lately because it's hard to define it in English, as I've explained before. But it's a really, really important word in the Old Testament. One of the most important words in the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. And in your outline, you can find a, um, a way that sometimes that word is spelt in English. It looks like chesed, the way it's spelt uh, sometimes in a lot of commentaries, but that's the uh, pronunciation in the Hebrew, chesed. And so what he's saying here, this word chesed that means love, kindness, pity, compassion, mercy, grace, loyalty, loving kindness is a word that tries to bring some of that together. What Micah is saying, that there is no one in the land, or virtually no one, as a generalisation, a characteristic of this society in his time, it is characterised by an almost total lack of loyalty to God, chesed to God, and what flows from that, an almost total lack of loving, kind, compassion, compassionate and loyal behaviour towards one's neighbour and brethren. And that's important in the context because remember chapter 6, verse 8, which we looked at last time. And what does God require of you but to do justice, to love, kindness, chesed, and to walk humbly with your God? Micah is saying there's hardly any of the kind of people that God wants to see in the land in this uh, Old Testament situation, in the Old Testament church. He wants to see people who are governed by God's chesed, his loving kindness in their hearts, and that is what is largely absent. So that is what was missing. But the problem was not only what was missing, but what follows from that, because uh, we don't live too well with vacuums inside us. And when there is a vacuum of the things that ought to be in our hearts, you pretty well always will find that there is a surfeit of other things that are the exact opposite of what God wants to see. And so we get this list here, a description not only of what God wants to see and doesn't see, but also of the things he does not want to see, but there's an excess of these things in this society, things that God loathes. And we can summarise it this way. And as we do so, I want to compare it to some extent with the society that we live in right now. You find this in verses 2, the second half, 2b to 6. It is a society filled with violence. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. They hunt for the others. They hunt for each other with a net. And you think about our society in that regard. Euthanasia, abortion, around the Western world, increasing cases of terrorism, crime, violent crime. People hunting for other people. People lying in wait. People lying in wait for unborn babies and for elderly, the elderly who are approaching their, their death and hunting them under the guise of mercy. Corruption in high places, bribes, fraud, cronyism. The more a culture departs from the gospel, 
the more of that kind of thing you're bound to see. Expertise in doing evil. People becoming proficient in it. Uh, They're really good at it. With both hands, they are fully committed. And they're practiced at doing evil. Verse 3. Even the best of them, the most upright, like a thorn hedge or briar. Verse 4. In other words, people who are little else to others than a painful hindrance to them. Fit for nothing other than burning. Breakdown of trust. Breakdown of confidence in other people. In your neighbour. In your friend. In your fellow worshipper. And as part of that breakdown of the family. To such a point that a man, as it's described here, cannot even fully trust his own wife and has to be careful what he says to her. Children turning against their parents. In-laws turning against their relatives. So that your enemies become the members of your own household. Verses 5 and 6. And there we could think today of children reporting their parents for practicing biblical discipline. Or children reporting their parents in some countries for parents trying to dissuade their children from changing gender. Children trying to divorce their parents in some cases. Marriage breakdowns. Rejection of the institution of marriage itself. And the dissolution of the family, at least as far as the Bible describes it. Sound familiar? Well, our society, Western society, is breaking down in a similar way. The more and more it departs from the gospel. But what I want to stress, and I've said this before too in looking through Micah, what I want to stress that this passage is not describing just any passage. It is describing what was happening in the Old Testament church. And that, I would suggest, is one of the reasons why this was such a great grief to Micah. Bad enough to see it going on around you in an unbelieving society, but how much worse when you see something like those things happening in the church. What a grief that is. And keep in mind too that Micah the prophet had been laboring for some time to try and turn that situation around. And temporarily it was turned around. There was a time when Hezekiah listened to what the prophet said and Hezekiah brought reforms, but the problem was that those reforms didn't touch the hearts of many people in Judah. And so when Hezekiah died, And when Manasseh took over, and when Manasseh led Judah to new depths of depravity, the majority of the people willingly followed because those reforms that Hezekiah brought didn't sink very deep into their hearts. Hezekiah's reforms were a brief Indian summer in an otherwise miserable season. Well, we may uh, see from this that Uh, It's not wrong for us to grieve over our society. But even more so for the state of the church, when you have a situation when many who claim to be Christians accept the propaganda that we get from our unbelieving society concerning things such as the modern family, 
gender confusion and, and those kind of things. After all, sinners do often try to hide from the truth by redefining it. If you manage to redefine the truth, redefine the standards, then you can kid yourself you're no longer breaking them. And our society certainly does that. But Christians ought to know better, and we do know better. Those who hear God's word and know God's word ought not to get sucked in by this kind of propaganda. Because we, above all others, know the Lord's definitions, the Lord's standards. But sadly, this was a common thing for people to go with their unbelieving culture. And it was also something that happened in Old Testament times as Israel was influenced by the nations. And therefore it was common in the Old Testament prophets to find the prophets grieving over such things. And not only in the prophets, you find it in the Psalms as well. Psalm 14, for example. And you find it in the New Testament, as I've mentioned before, the Lord Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, Luke 19, verses 41 to 44. And we ought to grieve over such things. If you love the Lord's righteousness, and you love the Lord's loving kindness, and you see his name profaned, and you see his church deforming, if you love his church, then that also is a painful thing to see. And if you love your neighbour and you see your neighbour destroying himself and destroying his family and destroying his society, then yes, that ought to cause us grief. It is right to grieve because God himself is described as grieving over sin and especially the sin of his people. Psalm 78 verse 40 Isaiah 63 verse 10, for example. In addition to Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, we could also think in the New Testament of passages like Ephesians 4 verse 30, which speak of the Holy Spirit grieving over our sin. So this, this kind of language is very common in the scripture. And thus Micah's woe to me and ours as well is a reflection of God's grief. Though, as I've said before, God does not experience emotions as humans do. Rather, his favour towards his people and his opposition to sin, on the other hand, these are described using terms from human emotional experience to help us understand. But that doesn't alter the fact that when we reflect God's attitude towards these things, toward his church, toward his people on the one hand, toward his creatures, but also towards sin and evil, when we reflect God's attitude towards those things by our grieving for us, that is something that involves the whole person. It involves our soul, it involves our mind, it involves our emotions as well. And hence a real grief. However, Christian grief is not a mere wallowing in misery. It is turned Godward. And that includes, this is something I think we know uh, when, we go, when we have a funeral. When a loved one who is close to us dies, 
Uh, We know how that works. We know the grief of it, but we also know that the Christian joy that is, is coupled with that as we turn to the Lord and look to the promises of the gospel. So we know in that situation what it means to turn grief Godward. What I'm suggesting is that that applies to other things that cause us grief as well, including our grief of what we see going on around us. And we look at that in our second and final point, but as for me. And this contrast comes in verse 7. And the language that Micah uses here implies that whatever others may do, Micah says, I'm just going to keep looking to the Lord. And I'm going to wait for him and what he does in his providence according to his purposes. And I'm going to wait expectantly for that because I know that what he will do will be good and right and for his glory and also for his people. And again, this is not an expression that is unique to Micah. Psalm 31 verse 14. But as for me... I trust in you, O Lord. And very strikingly, I think, Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, yet I will exult in the Lord. On what basis can we do that? On what basis can we wait expectantly, even with joy, in the midst of such a crooked and perverse generation? Well, Micah gives us a number of reasons. One of those reasons is that he is confident, according to the second half of verse 7, that God hears his prayer. And that means that God knows also Micah's grief. And he knows the persecution of the faithful. And he knows about all the wickedness that is going on as well, sometimes within certain quarters of the church at large. So that's one reason, because God hears and knows. He hears the cries of his people, especially. Second reason, verse 4, the second half, because Micah also knows that the Lord will deal with all that wickedness. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. The day of the watchman is thought to be a reference, though it does create some uh, discussion among commentators, but it's thought to refer to the day that the prophets talked about, the prophets being God's watchman. The day of the watchman, the day that the prophets had warned would come upon Judah if they did not turn from their sins and turn back to the Lord. On that day then, confusion would come. The confusion and dismay of invasion. The confusion and dismay, a little bit later on, of exile in Babylon. But also the confusion of wondering How could this happen to God's own people? And maybe sometimes that thought flits across your mind too when you look at what the church is going through today and you think, how could God allow his church to have to put up with all these things, to suffer all these things? 
And that can be a point of confusion. But it is especially a point of confusion when God's people refuse to recognise their own ungodliness and rebellion, as was the case with Judah. As I've mentioned before, they had a full explanation from God through the prophets as to why the day of confusion was coming upon them, the day of distress and dismay. It was coming because of their own sins. But if you don't recognise that and accept that, then of course you're going to say, why does God do this to us? Why does he do this to his church? Not that that's the only reason he sends such things upon his people. Chastisement, sometimes it comes uh, to train us, to sanctify us. Uh, Sometimes it comes in connection with particular sins. And at the time, chastisement brings grief. But it is better in the long run when it reminds us of our own sins and becomes an occasion for the people of God returning to him. A third counterbalance to grief over ungodliness in the land, and that is the character of the Lord himself. He is the God of our salvation, verse 7. And on that basis, Micah can say, you enemies, you've got to accept the fact that you can knock us down, but we're going to rise again because God saves his people. He is the God of my salvation, verse 7. He is also a light for me, verse 8. Again, the character of God. And this character is seen above all in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our saviour, the Lord of my salvation, and who is our light, the light of the world. What can this perverse generation do to us? Sure, it can make things difficult for a time can cancel our platforms for speaking out publicly. It can remove our charity status. They can fine us. They can imprison us. But they can't touch that salvation. And they can't alter that light that we are given that guides us through the darkness of this world. And they cannot alter the life, spiritual and eternal, that sustains us at all times. The danger, though, is that we may do ourselves some harm if we forget these things. If we put our focus in the wrong place. Surely we do need to be aware of the darkness gathering around us in order to speak out against it. In order to warn our society for the good of those because we love our neighbour. We need to be aware and think about these things in order to encourage each other. We need to be aware of these things in order to pray about these things. And we need to be aware of these things because as particular things come before us, they, they need a response, an immediate response uh, in, various, in various different ways. And we need to know how to respond appropriately. But our focus needs to be on the Lord, on his light and on his salvation. And if we focus more on our problems, we may find ourselves ground down by pessimism or even despair. If we focus on the solution, the Lord Jesus, we will be sustained by hope and by joy. 
uh, you know, waiting, to use that language that Micah uses here, waiting for the Lord. There's at least two types of waiting. Waiting can be a, a thing of impatience and frustration. And probably most of you know this, uh, children may be waiting for their parents to get themselves organised to go somewhere, or parents waiting for their children to get their act together to go somewhere, a husband waiting for a wife, a wife waiting for a husband. We all know what it's like to have to wait for someone when we're ready and we're late and they're not ready. So waiting can be a frustrating thing, can be a matter of impatience. But then there's another kind of waiting. And uh, some of the parents-to-be in our congregation, I'm sure, know that. You're waiting for that baby to be born. And that's waiting, but it's not waiting in frustration and impatience, or maybe sometimes a little impatience, but it's also waiting in joy and expectation, with a sense of eager expectation and excitement. And that's the kind of waiting that we have for the Lord. Something that comes with excitement and joy because it comes with a promised vindication of God's people. It comes with a promise of deliverance from all that harms. It comes with a promise of salvation. May it be that we learn to wait in our present situation, that we wait for the Lord more than we wait for the axe to fall. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would keep us from becoming comfortable with the evils around us, things we see on TV, what we hear going on in some churches, what we know is happening in our society. Father, will you maintain the grief and also a measure even of holy anger in us at the way that that people are treating you. But Father, will you also govern these responses by the conviction that you will deal in your time and in your way with all wickedness and you will surely deliver your promise, deliver your people because you have sworn on oath to do so. Father, will you cause Christian hope and joy to remain undiminished even in the midst of darkness and sadness? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God's church is much oppressed, and yet she will be and already is in principle victorious, and she will eventually rest because her foundation is upon Christ. Sold to hymnal 398, we'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing after for the blessing and doxology, 398.
doxology, we sing number 135, stanza 4. The God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.